Hi, I'm Melissa Boyles. Welcome to Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. In this episode, I got to interview Jesus Sapien. Jesus is the Public Transit Department Director for the City of Phoenix. He's had his hands full trying to navigate our COVID-19 environment, but keeps his eye on the prize as he is very appreciative of his team and is dedicated to working with the partner organizations from across the Valley of the Sun. He's shared with us in this episode his journey as he's grown his career at the City of Phoenix, starting out at the City Council office, where he got to learn all about the different aspects of public service. He led the operations division of the public transit department, so has some very cool information to share about technology and the types of things that they're looking at beyond today and thinking about tomorrow as they are growing their service and introducing new modes to the city. So without further ado, let's talk to Jesus. Welcome, Jesus. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. I know you're super busy and it's really exciting to have you on the show. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I know we've crossed paths a lot over the years in several different organizations. So it's nice to kind of sit down and let everyone know what we have going on here in public transit at the city of Phoenix. And you guys have a lot going on. We do. You know, we have a lot of projects going on either that we as the city are planning and putting forward. But at the same time, you know, we are working closely with Valley Metro and our other regional partners on light rail expansion and uh, several other things. But of course, the past several months have been kind of overshadowed by COVID. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. But yeah, we're definitely having to reprioritize kind of the order in which things happen. And so, yeah, we have been very, very busy both pre-COVID and during COVID. That's certainly the truth. Well, before we dive into all of that, would you mind sharing a little bit with people your role for the public transit department with the city of Phoenix and maybe a little bit about how you ended up there? Absolutely. It can be a little convoluted from an outsider looking in perspective because we're unique in that we are a city of Phoenix department. So I know when we have staff come on board and join the department, there's always questions about well, what's the difference between City of Phoenix, Public Transit Department, Valley Metro, RPTA, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, one of our, what I call, you know, Transit 101 discussions is kind of filling in people and how it all works. So basically, we are one of 30 plus City of Phoenix departments that has been in place a very long time. And our role, we have kind of a bifurcated role. Number one, we provide transit service. So we have a dedicated funding source. We're a member of Valley Metro. We are a city department. We work very, very closely with several other city departments. So number one, we provide service. The other role that we play is that we're the designated recipient of federal funds for the entire region. So any federal funds that come to what's called the urbanized area, the Phoenix Mesa urbanized area, we pass them through to our regional partners. So the other role that we play is providing guidance to sub-recipients is what we call them. You know, there are partners in providing transit services, but technically we call them sub-recipients. And so we do our best to provide guidance as to what are the strings that come with that federal funding and then how do those recipients properly use, disperse, and oversee those funds. So that's a little bit of a different role. But the other thing that adds to the complexity is unlike a department like police, fire, public works, water, a lot of the service that we provide as a city department is contracted out. It's outsourced. So even though we are one of the smaller city departments, we're a little over 100 authorized positions within the city of Phoenix. If you take into account our contract providers, our service providers that are contracted, it's a couple thousand positions. So we have three garages for fixed route bus. And then we have one garage that our contractor rents out. It's not a city facility for dollar ride service. So we have a fleet 
of over 500 heavy duty vehicles. We have $125 ride vehicles. So just imagine all the things that you have to do for your one vehicle, you know, purchase, insurance, title, license, all of that stuff, fuel, cleaning, maintenance. We do that for over 600 vehicles. So our job is to partner with those private service providers because they're driving our bus. They're working out of our facility, but they're the ones kind of doing what we call the transit expertise, which is recruiting drivers, maintenance staff, road supervisors, technicians to work on the various aspects that are on the bus. Believe it or not, buses are very, very technologically advanced these days. So they take care of that. Everything from recruiting, hiring, training, sending staff out in the field to monitor service. So we partner with them in the sense that they are providing that service on the city's behalf. So our job is to partner with them, but our job is also to oversee what they're doing and the quality of what they're doing. Because again, they're providing the service on the city's behalf. And what we continually strive for is good service, on-time service, positive for service, customer service, all those things that come with providing a public service. And so over the years, for example, we've had you know, Boy Scout groups and Girl Scout groups and people come through that want to get mentored and things like that. I tell them, you know, when you put your blue or green can out at the edge of your driveway, what do you expect? You expect it to be picked up. When you turn the faucet on, what do you expect? You expect clean, cool water to come out. And when you go out to a bus stop, what do you expect? You expect that service to be on time and take you where you need to go. And all of those examples are city-provided services. So we are one cog in the big wheel that is, you know, providing public service. And then, of course, we're a member of Valley Metro. Valley Metro is the regional agency made up of all the different city members. And we all do our best to work collectively to provide a seamless product to the public, to the passenger. So the example I always use is... If I'm a passenger hopping on a bus at Central Avenue in Thomas, for example, I don't need to know that it's a city of Phoenix owned bus that is driven by a private contractor, yet it has the Valley Metro logo and brand on it. You know, our job is to kind of package all of that up on the back end and deliver a service to the public that's seamless as best we can that it's seamless. You know, we have a published schedule. We have a bus layout. We have ADA features. We have seating, cooling, cameras, a fair collection system. We have all these things that the customer doesn't need to know how it all works. They just need to know that it does work. So that's what we strive to do. And we have really good working relationships, you know, everywhere from Avondale to Scottsdale to Glendale to Tempe. You know, we all talk regularly. We all have joint meetings. We do our best to all play in the same sandbox because we all have the same goal, you know, getting people from point A to point B, whether that's one trip, one mode, multiple transfers, multiple modes, doesn't matter to us. We need to get them where they're going. With regard to modes, can you talk a little bit about the different modes that fall under public transit? Absolutely. So kind of our workhorse is local service. That is the biggest chunk of what we do. So if you think of a road, a street like Camelback, Thomas, Central, 7th Avenue, 1935th Avenue, all the major streets, because Phoenix is on a grid system, Local service is kind of our workhorse. That's what most people, the majority, I should say, of our passengers take. But then we also do light rail service. We fund uh, the majority of the light rail system in the region. Us, Mesa, Tempe, Phoenix, you know, are the three big players. So we work together to fund that service and work closely with Valley Metro to deliver that mode to our passengers. But then we also do a handful of other things. We do what's called paratransit. Most people know it as dial-a-ride. So if you have any type of disability that prevents you from utilizing local or express or rapid or light rail service, then we have dial-a-ride service that'll pick you up at your home and take you where you need to go. And then we do 
rapid service within Phoenix. And then we partner with our local agencies to provide express service. So those are the commuter routes that kind of come from the outskirts of town, primarily from a park and ride or transit center, and bring people to the center of downtown. So things like Ahwatukee, Happy Valley, Deer Valley area, West Phoenix, East Valley, there's a handful of rapid and express routes that commuters like, you know, myself, I can pick it up at a park and ride. I can leave my vehicle there and then I can just hop on, tap my card and come downtown. So that's another service that we provide. And then we do a handful of other things. We work with a lot of sub-recipients across the region. It's called the 5310 program. It's an FTA program. And what those are usually smaller organizations, uh, mainly nonprofits that receive federal fundings for small groups of vans. Some of them are one, two, or three. Some of them are 10 or 12. And what they primarily do is that they provide very customized service to individuals who might, you know, have a disability. There's a lot of those across the region. So we work with those individuals. And then we also have called an alternative transportation program. It's primarily a taxi voucher program for individuals who might have a disability, who might have recurring medical appointments, dialysis appointments, things like that, as well as seniors. So we we do this taxi voucher program for individuals who might not need to utilize transit on a regular basis, but nonetheless have those occasional trips. So we do that as well. So kind of a whole host of things. And then we work closely with our street transportation department on some of the things that they've picked up over the years, like the scooter and bike share programs. We work with them because, you know, we're always trying to support from a passenger perspective, again, people getting from point A to point B. And, you know, scooters, e-bikes, grid bike programs have kind of arisen over the past couple of years. So we work with them to see where do we see a lot of pedestrian activity and transit transfer activity so that we can kind of pinpoint where those needs are. So we work closely with them. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, a a summary of all the stuff that we do in terms of what our role is in Valley Metro. You know, if you look at kind of all the ridership over the years, the ridership has been, you know, 60 to 70 million passenger boardings across the entire region via all those modes, bus, light rail, paratransit. And you'll see from the ridership reports that the majority of those are happening in Phoenix. So not only is it our job to keep an eye on it and fund it, but to work with our partners to make sure those connections are happening because people are traveling from Sun City to Mesa, for example. And we need to help them not only figure out how to get there, you know, because they're going to cross through, through Phoenix, maybe on the way to Tempe and Mesa. But we also need to, you know, make sure that the service and modes there's choices out there, basically. So, so we do that. So can you explain a little bit what the requirement is for providing the paratransit service and how that's different from the taxi voucher service? And then you mentioned having a partnership across the Metro Phoenix area, the greater Phoenix area. How does that work with regard to, say, somebody who is starts out in Phoenix, but then needs to go to Tempe for a doctor's appointment or something? Right. So paratransit is a federal requirement. So wherever you put bus and rail service, you're required to provide paratransit service. And again, that's basically the service for individuals who due to a disability cannot regularly or at all utilize bus and light rail service. So in Phoenix, we work closely with Valley Metro. For Phoenix residents, you have to be ADA certified. So you go through a basically a process to see what kind of disability you may have. And then they make a determination, can you ride bus or rail? If you can, is it always or is it sometimes? And if you can't at all, you know, then you can utilize paratransit service. So we provide that basically everywhere that we put bus and rail service. If you were to look at a transit service map that was made up of all of the bus and rail routes and you overlaid a paratransit map, they kind of lined up very nicely because uh, what the feds say is within three quarters of a mile of that type of service, you have to provide paratransit service. So it's basically providing the same level of service for those individuals who can't utilize it. So we do that. Specifically to your question, we have implemented a no transfer type of service in recent years. 
again, in partnership with Valley Metro and all the other cities, because it did used to be the fact that if you were utilizing, for example, Phoenix dial ride and you wanted to go to Mesa, there would be a transfer that happened at the jurisdictional border, you know, which just did not work for the passenger. So years ago, we did away with that. We had a lot of regional discussions and we basically said, let's just figure out a way to do this. And it is a mixture of contracted providers. And in more recent years, we're utilizing taxi companies as well. But it's basically based on the passenger's needs. How do we get them from point A to point B? And then we use some scheduling software that kind of helps us with that. You know, how do we pick up not only that individual, but perhaps other individuals who might be heading in the same direction to make the trip cost effective and at the same time to make it time efficient. So that has taken a lot of work over the years, but that's what you can do these days. You can travel from city to city on paratransit and not have to transfer again, which was the case years ago. In terms of the taxi voucher programs, that's something that Phoenix particularly has had in place for a really long time. And we have found that, you know, there might be some individuals who who have a disability but don't regularly need to use paratransit that might be a senior that might have regular, for example, dialysis appointments and can't always utilize or maybe it's not efficient for them to use bus or light rail service or even paratransit service because, you know, their trips are sporadic or they're a very short distance, you know, things like that. So we instituted the voucher programs over the years. And that's a great partnership we have with one of our service providers who in turn works with a bunch of taxi companies. So we found that if we fund that, if we support our passengers through providing that service. They can buy those vouchers. They can take those trips as they need to. And then, you know, it kind of alleviates the need to expand service in those areas on a long-term basis because we do have parts of town that we know don't have service today and might need it in the future. But right now, the ridership kind of isn't there to justify putting in a permanent, for example, bus route. So, We try to offer these other modes for individuals who, again, don't need bus or uh, light rail service on a very regular basis, but nonetheless have those occasional trips that they need to take. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered what the difference between the taxi voucher program and, and the paratransit service was. Yeah. Can you, as the director of the public transit department, with all of these different modes and all of these different activities going on, can you explain a little bit your background and how you became the director of the public (laughs) transit department? (laughs) Yeah. um, I actually like telling that story and my staff probably gets tired of hearing it over the years, but here it goes again. (laughs) I took transit as growing up in West Texas. I grew up in uh, El Paso, Texas, uh, right on the border with Mexico and New Mexico and far West Texas. And my mom didn't drive. So grew up in a, a household where my mom didn't drive and we had one vehicle and, you know, of course, my, my dad would go Monday through Friday to work, you know, and the vehicle was gone. So we took the bus everywhere and we were lucky enough in El Paso to be near a bus route. So anytime we needed to do anything, we would go a couple blocks away. We would stop at the bus stop, wait for it to come by. And my mom would load us up, you know, me, my brother, my sister, and we'd go where we needed to go. And she either knew the bus route because she had memorized it or, you know, she had a bus book with her. So we took the bus everywhere. And so I never imagined, you know, as a career that would kind of come into play. But I think that provides me a solid understanding of how important transit is and why we have it. I hear stories all the time about, you know, how often people ride, what times they ride. It's always kind of a reminder to me of how important the service is. And again, you know, the example I give younger folks, you know, just like when you turn on the water faucet or put your trash can at the end of your curb, you expect the service to happen. Transit's the same. People rely on it. So that's a huge reminder for us. So, you know, grew up taking transit everywhere we needed to go as a family, took it to school as well throughout uh, high school. So I, I always kind of knew the importance of transit. I started with the city in the mid 2000s, 2005, and I started off working in a city council office, which was really, really interesting. And actually, I would 
recommend anyone who wants to get into municipal government to either start there or do around there because you end up getting a really good glimpse of how does the city work. And then you also get a really good understanding of what do all the different departments do because we have approximately 30 plus departments across the city. And it's sometimes confusing about who does what. So working in a council office was a really, really good primer for what does each department do. And then what ended up happening after I worked there for a while, the city of Phoenix has what's called the management intern program. And that is a program for individuals who have a master's degree to kind of get their feet wet in, you know, the world of government. So I applied for that and I was able to do that in 2006, 2007. And what you do for that year is you staff city manager's office, you staff the council, and you're kind of given all these, you know, a whole host of responsibilities and duties. And at the same time, you work with what's called the line department. So public transit, public works, aviation, things like that. You might work with them throughout the year. You might be assigned to them for a portion of the year. There's kind of different ways to approach it. And so what happened during that year is that I got to work for approximately half the year, the fiscal year, the public transit department. I got assigned over here and I came over and I kind of got to learn who does what and how it all works. And I think the thing that attracted me most to it was the people that were here at the time. And believe it or not, many are still here. Transit has a really good track record for having people work here on a long-term basis, which is something I think we should be proud of. So at the end of the management year, we are encouraged to apply, 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 try to get a permanent job with the city, right? And so I was attracted to public transit. I liked the people, the work the way everything was set up. And at the time, under the T2000 plan, which voters approved back in 2000, a lot of that work was being rolled out. So we were planning for that. Light rail construction was, you know, going full bore. So there was a lot of things going on. So it, it attracted me to come over here again, the type of work, the people that were here, the people that I got to work with during that time, you know, and I did look at and talk to other departments, but public transit just kind of felt right. So I came over here as a management assistant one. And so kind of just learned the ropes, worked with a lot of the different divisions, got assigned to the operations division at the time, which is basically the group that buys buses, buys fuel, puts out the contracts, oversees the contracts, does a lot of the emergency management planning, We have an operations control center here in our building that kind of acts like a control tower at the airport, basically monitors all the vehicles that are out in service at any given time. At the time, you know, we did a lot of close work with that group. And so it was really, really interesting stuff. And as part of anyone's career, you know, you kind of start learning how to write council reports, doing budgeting, contract oversight, putting out solicitations. So... Ever since back then, being a management assistant, one with the department, I kind of started applying for different jobs, opportunities within the department in terms of promotions. So I kind of slowly worked my way up. I had several positions over the years and eventually became a deputy director over the very division I started with, which was operations. But there was also other aspects of that division, planning, and now we have technology in, in that division. So Um, Kind of worked my way into that, you know, and I had a really good time just doing the work, working with our private partners, other agencies in the region that, you know, we have this back and forth about how does the service work? How should it work? Where should we expand service? So really, really tried my best to build a lot of regional positive relationships with the other cities, because as, as a lot of folks know, Buses don't stop at the border. You know, they keep going. You can have a bus that goes from Avondale to Glendale to Phoenix to Scottsdale, for example. And we all have to work together to make that service happen. So we were working a lot on that back in those days. And then I was working in that division for quite some time. And then I was approached to help out with light rail because the light rail program was expanding. There was a lot of big projects coming up. I'm just one of those individuals who the city needs something, I'll do my best to step up, uh, even if I have to learn something new. So went over and helped with light rail for a while. And that kind of, you know, helped me understand 
how all of that works a little better. I knew it to some extent, but working on a lot of those big projects and again, working with Valley Metro more, some of the construction teams, some of the design and consultants kind of opened my eyes a little more as to how it all works. And then it came time that the previous director who you know, Maria Hyatt, was getting ready to retire. So the position came open and I was happy with what I was doing, you know, in terms of the light rail program. Again, it was very different from what I had done for a long time, but it was something new for me to learn. And we were making a lot of progress, both regionally and with the federal government, because they had agreed to partially fund a lot of our projects. So it was a big deal for me to once again, throw my head into something different. But I also knew that if I didn't do it, I might miss the opportunity. Was I going to look back and think I should have done it? So I went ahead and threw my head in. So lo and behold, you know, here we are. I interviewed for it and kind of got to come back to the team. We have a really, really good team here. And I was glad to come back to the same building, the same team, and kind of use what I had learned over the years to guide the department, to support the department, and play our role both with the city of Phoenix as well as the region. And here we are, you know, expanding on the T2050 program five years in. Yeah. Couple questions. Um, one, when you were the deputy director over operations and you were managing the fleet and you know all of the different types of vehicles and service and and things like that, you mentioned technology and how technologically advanced our buses are now. Can you talk a little bit about that and what some of those advancements have been? Sure, a lot of. Folks don't know how much technology goes both on a bus as well as into the planning and the provision of service. So we have things like uh, all of our buses have GPS. So at any given time, I can go into our operations control center and look at the big screen and see where all our buses are. So it's really, really cool to know where they are, where they're going, where they've been, because that in turn helps us ensure basically that we're sticking to the schedule. One of the biggest things from a passenger perspective is, is my bus on time? So that's one thing that, that helps us monitor. But we also have what's called the CAD EVL system, computer-aided dispatch automatic vehicle locator. And we put that across the region, almost a thousand buses. We've been working on the past couple of years to put that in. And that's basically helps us roll out the schedule and monitor the service once it's out on the street. But it also is our communication system because what we found years ago is the communication system that we had on our buses was getting older. The spectrums in the communications systems that are out there from the FCC were getting reconfigured. So we knew we had to get a newer system. So we worked for several years, number one, trying to figure out what do we need, and then number two, procuring that and putting it on board. So right now we're in the middle of rolling that out. And what that's going to help us with is not only schedule adherence, which will, from a customer perspective, you know, be a positive thing, but then rolling out real-time information. As we all know, a lot of us have a lot of apps on our phones that help us do everyday things. And so what our pie in the sky is is that with this new system, we'll have an app on our phone where we'll be able to open the app, look up the route that we normally ride. And instead of the system telling me the bus is supposed to be here at 3 p.m., it'll tell me the bus is 11 minutes away. So from a passenger perspective, being able to plan. And it'll help us push out passenger notifications. You know, when we have... For example, if there's an accident on a street and we can't get through and have to implement the detour, the passengers are wondering, why is my bus late? You know, so we'll be able to push out messages. From a driver perspective, you know, we've got thousands of uh, bus operators out there behind the wheel. It's a communication system for their use to be able to communicate with the operations control center, the OCC. And that is crucial because once a bus is out in the field, The OCC can watch it, manage it, but the OCC is also their lifeline in terms of, you know, buses get sideswiped, rear-ended. If for any reason the bus operator has to call police because of something that they saw, the buses break down, you know, especially during summer. So the operator needs to call the OCC and get some help. And then we have a whole host of road supervisors out in the field that can help with things like 
if a bus is, you know, having an electrical issue or uh, the driver needs to be relieved at some point along the route. So that system kind of helps us monitor the system and react to things. But this newer system will also help us more proactively do things like route planning and passenger notifications and things like that. Our buses also have cameras on them. So we have multiple cameras to be able to retroactively look at things. You know, we unfortunately do have incidents happen on buses and we work very, very closely with our police department. So in the occasion that something does happen on or sometimes even near a bus, we've been reached out from police department to tell us, hey, there was this incident. You had, you know, you had a bus in the region. Can we review the video to see if it caught anything? And sometimes we are able to find stuff. So the onboard video cameras help us kind of, uh, you know, manage those things. The other thing is one of the somewhat technologically advanced things on our buses is we run on CNG, compressed natural gas. So the majority of our fleet is natural gas powered. We don't have our entire fleet running on natural gas. And the only reason we do that is so that we don't kind of put all our eggs in one basket in terms of one fuel source. So we run two thirds of our fleet on natural gas and then the other one third on ultra low sulfur diesel. And the only reason we do that, again, is because in the past we have had some supply shortages or issues. You may remember the um, pipeline break in the Phoenix area back in the early 2000s. So if you're only running on one type of fuel source and there's an interruption to that commodity, then what do you do? So that's why we run it that way. But again, two-thirds of our vehicles running on compressed natural gas, it's a lower-priced fuel. It's domestically produced, and it's much better for the environment. So we made the decision in the late 90s to go with natural gas. And originally, we had liquefied natural gas, but then we saw that the bus manufacturers and the engine manufacturers were transitioning from LNG to CNG. So now we have all our natural gas buses are CNG powered. So if you go to our garages, you know, you see these humongous tanks and all these compressors and all these dispensers. And it's just basically managing that natural gas source that we pump into the buses every day. So yeah, we also feed a lot of that from our CAD ABL system. We feed a lot of that to apps. And then we work closely with Google because they have what's called a real-time transit feed. And so if you come to the Phoenix area, for example, and open Google Maps and you zoom in on a bus or light rail route, the long-term plan is to have all of that information to be live. And so if you tap on a bus stop, you'll be able to see not only what routes serve that stop, but also when the next bus is coming and what the schedule looks like later in the day. So all of that's kind of happening behind the scenes right now. And again, we're working very closely with Valley Metro to make that happen because it's a regional system. The service that we operate is a component of the regional system. So we're all trying, you know, to put out the same service for our passengers. There's a a lot of talk industry level about autonomous and connected vehicles. Is there any discussion about using that technology for public transit? I participated in a recent ASU webinar because they wanted our input. And what I told them is, you know, we certainly keep looking at that. There's a couple things that we're keeping a close eye on because it could have a big impact on transit as an industry. One of them is electric buses and one of them is autonomous vehicles. And uh, what I would say is we're keeping an eye on it because the technology is kind of still being worked out from autonomous vehicle perspective. We know that from from a street transportation, from a vehicle operation, from a transit aspect, There's a lot of things that still need to be worked out. So we keep up to date on what's out there and what the vehicle manufacturers are doing. I think right now the focus is the two things I've seen, at least in the industry, is the focus is on uh, passenger vehicles. And then the other focus is on over-the-road long-haul trucking. Those are the two big areas where I've seen the most advanced done in terms of autonomous vehicles. We'll certainly look at it when it's ready. I just haven't seen the focus be there in recent years with the companies that are working on autonomous vehicles. It's there a little bit, but not to the extent that we've seen passenger vehicles and long-haul vehicles. Mm -hmm. We're also keeping an eye on electric vehicles. Um, We always get asked, 
why aren't we running electric buses and that technology while it's out there? We have tested it in this environment and unfortunately it's just not there yet. Our environment, you know, perfect example today is going to be 117 and an electric bus. We actually tried an electric bus in this, in the field last September and it just didn't get the range that we need. So again, that's another technology that we're keeping an eye on. And when the technology is ready and able to operate in this environment, you know, I think is when we'll take a harder look at it. Interesting. So you mentioned doing sort of a stint over at Valley Metro and working on the light rail side of things. Can you explain how does that collaboration work between the city and Valley Metro? Because the majority of light rail is in the city of Phoenix, but it's planned, designed, built, and operated by Valley Metro. Right. So 2015, the city of Phoenix voters approved Prop 104, which is now known as T2050. So it's a plan that goes through 2050. And it's got a lot of components in it, including light rail, bus rapid transit, paratransit, local bus, park and rides, et cetera, and a lot of street transportation improvements as well. So when I worked on light rail for that period, I was actually in the city manager's office and worked very closely with Valley Metro. And basically the way it works is exactly what you said. The city funds it, but then Valley Metro design, builds, operates it on our behalf. So we have a very good working relationship with Valley Metro. We have South Central, as you know, currently under construction. We have the downtown hub right down the street here from my office that we're keeping an eye on. We have the Northwest Extension that is also moving forward. And then the T2050 plan has other components such as going up to ASU West and West Phoenix, et cetera. So the way it works is very similar to what you said. We have our plans that we took to our voters and our voters approved. And now, of course, we have to work to make it happen. And we also partner with federal agencies, particularly the FTA, who we have been very fortunate have partnered with us and contributed funding to a lot of uh, not only Phoenix projects, but regional projects. So we work very closely with the Valley Metro team to see how should things should be designed, where should things go, you know, how do we incorporate things like landscaping, art, you know, what are we hearing from the community? The really big deal for us is going out to the public and letting them know what the plans look like. During my stint over there, it was certainly a lot of public outreach, literally taking out graphics and drawing boards and showing them, this is how things are going to look. What do you think? What input do you have? And we did that with everything from where the alignment went to what platforms look like, what kind of art is going to go on the platforms and shade structures and things like that. And then a really big component for us is also the adjacent property owners. What are their concerns? How's it going to impact their business access, their parking spaces, ingress, egress to their businesses, things like that. And along all of these extensions, there's a good number of those property owners. Might be a house, might be a office a complex, might be a business. Uh, so, you know, we want to make sure that whatever we're hearing from those individual businesses, property owners, the community as a whole, basically, you know, how do we take their input and incorporate it into the design so that once built, it looks good, it works well, and most importantly, provide the service, which is its primary function, providing transit to areas that need it based on current ridership along Central Avenue, for example, we have a lot of heavy ridership and that's why, uh, you know, light rail's going there. So our role is to work hand in hand with Valley Metro and kind of look at things as they progress, blueprints, designs, utility relocation, impacts to adjacent parcels, all of that has to be looked at again so that when, you know, we have the finished product, it looks good and operates well. So, As it pertains to planning the future corridors or extensions, how does that process work? Because I've heard in conversations with some folks at MAG and Valley Metro that the next couple of projects sort of on deck, the Capitol Extension going west and then West I-10, 
the capital extension, there's a couple of different options for how to go through the capital area. And I know the city's been super involved in those conversations and making those decisions, but then also looking at the West I-10 corridor and how do we serve that corridor. And there seems to be a little bit of debate about whether or not light rail is really the best mode to serve the commuters that provide some relief on I-10. So how do you guys participate in that and kind of weigh in to help make those decisions? Right. So the plan that we took to the voters in 2015 literally had lines on a map of what light rail extensions would look like. And so that's what they approved. And we continue working towards that eventual goal to institute an expanded light rail system. But we also, you know, continue to work with the region on, you know, what's going to work best because there are other components of the plan like local bus service and BRT, which we are currently in the middle of doing community outreach on as well. And then having those regional discussions because something like, for example, the Capital I-10 West extension all the way to West Phoenix, you know, has regional implications. So we want to make sure we're having those regional discussions. So a lot of things come into play. You know, we look at what has historical ridership been like, and there are a lot of areas in the Phoenix region that have really good, heavy, and historical bus ridership, such as the original light rail alignment that's in place today. You know, that was decided upon originally because there was heavy ridership there for decades. So as we expand it, absolutely, we are looking at current ridership patterns, but we also look at future growth patterns. We look at things like where is the commercial development going to go? Where's residential good development going to go? We do work closely with MAG to see what does freeway performance look like because anyone that goes on I-10 West at any given day knows that it kind of comes to a standstill Monday through Friday from early in the morning to late in the afternoon. It moves very slow. So there's definitely a need there, but there's also the analysis that continues to be evaluated as those projects come to fruition. We also have to show our regional partners at the FTA that there is ridership and there is need there to build that because we know if we cannot show that the numbers are there, they're going to look at to what level do they fund it once they make that decision to fund it. So we, we do have to show the need today and the need in the future. We also know that the region's growing yeah. and that some of these projects, how they look, uh, might change a little bit. For example, the I-10 West project, we were asked, well, does it need to end at 79th Avenue and I-10? Can it go a little north to Desert Sky Transit Center that we built a few years ago? So we know that as time goes on, development patterns change, population density changes, things continue to change, and we do have to take a fresh look at those as these projects move forward. And again, we need to kind of amplify those regional discussions. We know that, uh, for example, all the cities on the west side of Phoenix and the northwest part of town, they want transit. You know, we have those conversations and they're looking for ways to partner with us to make it most efficient. You know, if Phoenix builds something, how do they piggyback off of that and keep it going? So that's definitely a big part of the conversation as we continue to plan things like light rail. And again, as we continue having the outreach right now on bus rapid transit, we're doing our own study of what we're going to do within Phoenix. And at the same time, MAG is undergoing a BRT analysis for outside of Phoenix. And we have those continual conversations about how do we make it all work together. So you have your hands full. (laughs) (laughs) I get a lot of emails and texts and invited to a lot of meetings. Yes, yes. And, you know, we we do have to, you know, take a lot of things into consideration. Just an example, you know, we work with planning and development departments. They keep us informed. Hey, there's this multifamily going in. Here's their plans. What do you think? We work with community and economic development. You know, they come to us and say, this company is looking to move to Phoenix. What's the plan for transit at this intersection? We work with a lot of different departments that keep us in the loop about where things are coming and where the density will be in the future. And absolutely, you know, we, we have to take that into consideration and we have to plan for that because 
the future of Phoenix is that we're looking to double our population probably in the next 30 years. You know, and imagine if everyone's driving a car, you know, that, yeah. that just can't happen. We see the freeways today. And so we do have to provide options. And the thing that I keep in the back of my mind is when I go to a big city, a much bigger, denser city than Phoenix, like the New York, like Washington, D.C., I look at their transit systems, bus, subway, commuter rail, or otherwise. And I think to myself, that planning happened decades ago. So what we're doing right now is to not only continue what we've done successfully in terms of providing transit service, but also expand and lay the groundwork for the bigger, more dense system that needs to happen in the future. And speaking of the future and the present and having your hands full, how are you guys dealing with this COVID-19 environment that has to be difficult? Yeah, it's very different. The first thing I'll say is, you know, we haven't lost the ridership to the extent other cities have. We've seen some pretty dismal numbers in cities like New York and Portland and San Francisco and things like that. And, you know, our ridership has not dipped to those extent, but we have seen the numbers drop and it's very unfortunate. But by the same token, we've also, to the best extent we can, the service reductions that we have implemented are not what I would consider drastic. We've cut back one hour in the morning and two two hours at night. And then on light rail, we went for the peak times from 12-minute frequency to 15-minute frequency. And I'm going to stay positive and say, you know, well, we're going to put that all of that stuff back piecemeal. Might not be all at once, but we'll put it back as we see it. But yes, we have changed how we operate We talked to other agencies. We saw what was happening across the industry. We work very close with APTA, who keeps us informed on what might be going on in the industry as a whole. And then we've also adapted things locally. We worked very closely with the community, with our service providers, with the labor unions that drive, clean, fuel the bus and all that. And we've tried to have conversations about, okay, how do we adapt? How do we remain flexible? Because we have to recognize that the service that we're putting out there, people are still taking it. I mean, even today, we're still providing rides to probably 60, 70, 80,000 passenger boardings every day. That is lower than what we usually do, but it's still a big number. And we've had people reach out to us, tell us that they're grateful that, you know, the service is still up and running because they know other cities have drastically cut it back. And we know of a couple of agencies that had shut down altogether for a while. So we've done our best uh, to keep transit personnel safe. We've gone to rear door boardings. We've installed plexiglass to separate the driver from the passenger area. We're moving forward with installing a permanent barrier next to the driver to you know keep them safe. Uh, but we've also, we're, for example, right now, we have a few select tra- transit centers normally where we would be selling fair media. We're passing out masks instead. Folks can come by and, and get a mask. We partnered with our library uh, department, very grateful for their assistance. They're doing the curbside service at their locations. So we're providing masks to them so they can help them help us pass them out to the public. So we're doing a lot of things in line with what you're seeing, you know, increased cleaning, monitoring employees' health. For our department, we're allowing folks to telework when they can, where they can. But the biggest thing for us, of course, is a continuation of the provision of transit service because we know a lot of essential workers out there still need a ride. So we're still, for the most part, providing that service. Big deal for us. It's a big deal, but it's very encouraging to hear that the ridership isn't as impacted as some other communities have been. Yeah, we've seen some numbers in other agencies, probably in the 60, 70, 80 percentile drop. We've probably been more between the 40 to 50 percent drop. So it's still a big deal. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a big drop. But the nature of our service and the grid system that is the Phoenix layout, I think, provides the opportunity for us to continue providing the service as well as to continue getting that feedback from our passengers to hear. They're glad we still have the service out there because we, we still see them taking it. It's incredible. You yeah. think about where the, I think we're still the fifth largest city and 
one of, if not the fastest growing community in the country. And people need to not be stranded. They need to be able to go where they need to go and get to work. And yeah, yeah. I, you know, whether it be a weeknight or a weekend, I drive around and my wife makes fun of me because I still look at a bus or a bus stop or a bus bay or an intersection. And I look at it from a transit perspective and I will say, I still see people at bus stops waiting for the next bus. And so that's what kind of keeps, for me, you know, keeps in mind, that's who we're serving. That's who we need to continue serving because, you know, a lot of them, they might not have a car or the car they have at home might be used by someone else or transit might be their only option. And so that's who we have to continue serving, especially during these times. Having sort of watched your career over the years and seen how that has evolved, at least to me, you seem to have very much of a servant leadership mindset and approach to leading the department or leading division or various roles that you've had. As we're getting to the top of the hour, you know, one of the questions I always like to ask is about advice, words of encouragement. Part of the audience for the podcast is the mentorship group at WTS. So the young women who are really coming into the industry right now. And do you have anything that you would like to pass on to them? Yeah. So I go back in my mind when I started with the department, Debbie Cotton was our director. I remember her asking when I finished the management interim program, she knew I was looking at several departments. And shortly after I started here, she asked me, so why did you choose transit? She's like, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm glad to have you here. She's like, but what, you know, what was it about transit that brought you over? And I, and and she laughed out loud because I told her, I said, transit's cool. (laughs) I said, cool. (laughs) Transit's just cool. And what I would tell anyone, young or otherwise, individuals who might be in college currently or wrapping up their college degree or just getting started with a career, whether it be private or or public sector, you can have so many types of backgrounds and degrees and experience and come into transit and find something really cool to do. And I'm, I'm not saying that just because I'm already here. If you're an urban planner, if you're a PE, If you have a public administration degree, uh, we do environmental compliance. Uh, We do service planning. We plan out capital facilities, you know, all the time. We do plan reviews when things are being built. There's so many backgrounds that touch transit that if someone coming out of college came out and said, I have this type of degree, I can pretty solidly tell them, Yes, we can find something for you to do here. We have legal counsel. You know, we have just so many backgrounds here and we always have plenty of work. I will tell you that. So my advice is, especially if you're going to come to municipal government, find out how things work. It can be a little bureaucratic. It can be a little sometimes hard to decipher who does what. But once you're here a while, you either learned it yourself or we helped you understand how it all works. So wherever you're going, learn how that organization works. And the other thing is, corny as it sounds, enjoy what you do. Are you going to have those days when you're going to advocate for something and some either higher up or external decision is made and you have to change direction? Yeah, that's going to happen. But guess what? We're still providing transit service. We're still building bus bays and we're still increasing the shade out there. We're still pushing out the word on BRT, a new mode for us in the future. For the most part, we're still doing what we want to do, again, with cooperation and guidance from the community, with input from our management, our elected leaders, just making it all happen. My advice is also kind of learn what your role is going to be once you find your spot in an organization, because what's great about the city of Phoenix is Even if you have a certain title, don't think that that confines you to doing certain things. We have very general positions, for example, like management assistant and planner, things like that. And so you you might go into that position thinking you're only going to do that. Be open to doing other things because the more you learn about how things work organization-wide, the more of a solid footing you'll have in the long term. When you go to that next interview, you can say, you know what? I was a planner, 
But I also did this. You can kind of throw that out up there on the table for the interview panel and say, not only did I do planning, I did these other things. And I'm using planner as an example, but I know a lot of people in this department that they have one title, but they do a whole host of other things, either because it's been assigned to them or because they've been asked to do it. You know, we work with Homeland Security and emergency planning all the time. You know, who would have thought transit person, you know, would be working on that. But nonetheless, it's an important thing that we do. We get to explore new technologies. We get to um, look at all sorts of things that either are the core of transit or kind of what I'll call in the outskirts of transit, working with TNCs and working with companies that are looking at, for example, electric buses. We get to kick the tires and see how they work and give them feedback. So yeah, kind of keep an open mind as to just because your title says something, don't confine yourself to that. And the last piece of advice I would have is learn to write. I truly believe if you can write well, you can take that skill anywhere because we work with the public sector, we work with the private sector, and it is so important to get your message across in a succinct way and a valuable way. If just always, always keep learning to write and learn how to have your writing reflect the organization you work for. That is, I think, very, very key. I know that when I write something, I try to make it look like other city council reports or the weekly city council packet that comes out because I know that's how, as an organization, we're trying to keep the message short, but we're also trying to keep the message important. So how are we telling our elected officials as well as the public the intent of the program that we're trying to put out there. Sometimes less is more, but writing is such a valuable skill. So always keep that skill sharp. Thank you so much for (laughs) saying that. On a daily basis, I review things and read things and I think, oh my gosh, they did not mean to say that. And it's just, it's wonderful to hear someone in your position encourage people to learn how to write because it is a skill. It's a skill that you have to develop and you have to work on. It's an important skill. Yeah. I remember working for legal counsel. They moved around where the DBE program manager was reporting when I was mm-hmm. at Valley Metro. And I started working for Mike Ladino, who's legal counsel at the time. <laughs> and I thought I knew how to write until I worked for an attorney. He would bleed all over anything that I wrote. He teased me that I wrote like a romance novelist. <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> to yeah. this day, now I, now I get it. <laughs> yeah, you know, the... Uh... Our city clerk department puts out a weekly city council packet that has everything to do with every meeting that's happening the following week. And what's included in there is the agendas for all of the following week's meetings, but mm-hmm. also you know responses to citizen comments, city council reports from individual departments, requests for contract award. That's a huge deal for us. Yeah. So when I have a report going to council saying, I want to award an, a, a contract for this service, Here's how we evaluated the proposals we got. Here's how we're proposing to go with the, you know, the winning bid. And here's how much it'll cost us. You have to wait, find a way. And I tell my staff all the time, tell your story. Yes. Tell your story. Do it in a page or two. That might be hard, but tell your story. And the better you can do that and the more succinct you can do it, the more successful you'll be. I'm the same way. You know, my undergraduate degree is English. So I do a lot of reading and a lot of writing. And I tell people, every position I have had, private sector, but especially public sector, I've always had to write. No matter how how low or how high your position is, you will have to write and you will have to edit other people's writing. And I think the ability to communicate in writing verbally, I think that contributes significantly to someone's ability to advance. Yep. Yeah, I tell folks. When you're sending an email, read it once before you hit send. Read it two or three times more before you hit send. Because email is a little different because, you know, sometimes the body language and context is not always there. Yeah. Uh, when you send an email, but most importantly, you know, are you saying what you want and are you saying it in a sentence or two? Mm-hmm. So read before you hit send. Very important. Yes. <laughs> 
Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for doing this interview. I can't even tell you how much I learned. And I thought I knew a lot about public transit. So. Yeah, we always invite people to come over with us, drive them around to our bus facilities. We have buses up in the air being worked on. We have pits that people can walk underneath and look underneath uh, the buses to see what needs to be done. We have bus washers. We have fueling systems. We have parking rides, transit centers. We have over 4,000 bus stops across the city we have to keep an eye on. And then our operations control center. You can go in there. I always tell people, come in there on a weekday afternoon, like a Thursday from like 2 to 6 p.m. And you hear all the calls in coming from all the different bus operators. And it's just a wide range of things going on out there. So we're always happy to have people come by and learn more about our department. So I also appreciate being invited to do this podcast and kind of talk more about what do we do and how do we fit into the regional system? So thank you for that. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. It was so inspirational to hear Jesus' story and his enthusiasm for the public transit industry and all the very cool things that they get to do. I wish Jesus nothing but the best as he is continuing to lead us out of this COVID-19 environment with regard to our public transit service and what the city is providing to its citizens. Next up, we're talking to Andrew Haynes. Andrew is one of my favorite people. He's my coworker at Jacobs. He is the chair of ACEC and he's going to explain to us why his kids thought he got a promotion from a sponge to a mop. I look forward to having you join us next time. And until then, let's get moving. <laughs>